There you are. Yes. Hi. Hey. Hi. I was having trouble connecting. <laughs> oh, no problem. Mucho gusto. ¿Cómo está? Bien, bien. Perfecto. So if you don't mind, I'd like to see if we can hit the ground running. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? No, go ahead. Okay, wonderful. So first of all, I'm really excited to get to talk to you. You have uh, this remarkable short story collection coming out. But also, I'm very curious of your time as an academic and as a writer, and, and hopefully we can uh, get some insights to share with a lot of writers who might be interested in starting their journey, but also, selfishly for me, because it's always great to talk to amazing writers. So, uh, can you tell me a little bit about where you come from and, uh, and what you're all about? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I'm Peruvian. I was born and raised in, in Lima. Uh, during very turbulent times, uh, there were military dictatorships and then the armed conflict between the armed forces and the Shining Path. Um, but I grew up in a middle class family in a very safe environment for the conditions that the country was going through. Mm. Um, mm. And um, I was lucky enough that. My father and my grandfather loved books, so I had books around the house. Mm. Um, we didn't have great systems of public libraries in Peru when I was growing up, so not everybody had that access to books, and that was an enormous privilege. And I loved books. You know, I wrote little things my whole life. Um, was in, involved with books and, and, and writing. So when I went to college, I majored in uh, literary studies and linguistics. And it was a very academically oriented um, program. Uh, it did not have a creative writing path like oh, programs uh, in the United States where I now live have. And, and I like that intellectual engagement with analysis and research and criticism. So I was fascinated by that. And mm. during college, I wrote a little bit of poetry. Um, and then I went to graduate school in New York. Mm. And during that time, I stopped writing anything that was not um, scholarly work. Oh, uh, wow. I, okay. I was too involved with with research and um, it was very demanding for me. Mm. And then I got a job and moved to Chicago where I've been living for the last 25 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so I started teaching at the University of Illinois in, um, here in Chicago. Uh, and I love my job, but there was also a lot of pressure to get tenure, produce a, a first mm. academic book. Um, I had left all my friends behind now twice, mm. but in New York I had more of a, of a kind of family of other graduate students, other, other Latinx people. Mm. And it took me a while to find that in Chicago. So I was very isolated. I see. And, 
a lot of these stories that are part of the ghost of you came at that time. Uh, you will notice that they are very brief. Mm-hmm. So they are kind of glimpses into figments of my imagination that I held on to while I was devoting myself to this very um, hard work that I had to do as uh, as a teacher and a scholar in a new city, in a new job. Um, so my my writing, when I was young, I imagined the life as a, as, of a writer, like, you know, I would hear about Mario Vargas Llosa, you know, I'm from Peru, so mm. he was kind of this uh, very well-known known author that would say that he wrote his novels, like he would sit every day at his desk uh-huh. and start writing. And and so my my experience was nothing like that. <laughs> and first of all, you know, to to gain to be able to support myself, I I you know chose a career that I that I loved, but there was super demanding. I could not mm. just devote hours and hours to to create uh, the kind of universe that a novel. Um, demands, for example, right? Right, right. So um, my my stories and my poems are always brief because they they kind of come up in the interstices of this other life that I have, yeah. right? And I think that they are also informed. It's it's interesting because I I think that you could see um, reflections of my interests in in both kinds of writing, mm-hmm. just in a, in a different way, right? Because um, I see that uh, in my my second scholarly book had to do with with memory of trauma during the war in, in Peru. Mm. But what I try to figure out there is how do we claim that we remember something that didn't happen to us by looking at a photograph. Right, right. right. And and then um, in my short stories, I would see that I have a couple of stories where this idea of, of photographs as mementos and as part of the construction of a story come up too. There, there was a passage that I had found in, in one of your bios about the idea of nations and family. Mm-hmm. So that seems to right. be a recurring idea for you uh, in terms mm-hmm. of what happened in back home, right? Right. Do you feel that it, it makes it easier to be removed from the nation itself as you're looking back on, mm-hmm. on something like that from your past? Yes, and I think that in my particular case, and I've said this in in other spaces, is that it was I I felt it was really hard for me to talk about Peru and what was happening in Peru. That I felt that I couldn't really understand mm. um, my country, and and so and I also felt that that. The things that I were was able to write about were very personal mm. and not really relevant regarding the the tragic things that were happening in my country. 
So I didn't feel that I had the space to explore those more personal experiences because everything was so urgent and um, and so, I don't know, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And so being a way kind of, um, I helped me, I don't know, find find images and find the words to to explore areas that I didn't have the freedom to explore mm-hmm. um, when I was in Peru. Yeah. And you mentioned you had a, a very busy time when you were doing research and you were studying and that sort of work. Did you feel at some point like that was almost an escape to the things that you weren't ready to talk about, uh, about home, about um, the situations back then? Yeah, definitely, because that, that first book about family and nation, um, I didn't realize uh, this until I had finished the book, uh, does not include any Peruvian works. Mm. So I was talking about Latin American novels um, where the representation of the family is an allegory of the nation. Mm. And I had not included anything Peruvian. So it was kind of, I removed myself even intellectually Mm -hmm. uh, for maybe 10 years um, from trying to do anything regarding what was happening in Peru. And and then I um, started um, kind of, trying to go back and and understand and the for me the work of of the truth and reconciliation commission in the early 2000s helped me kind of find a, a an understanding of how these things have affected me even if i personally or my family were not an active part of the conflict, right? And so, so it's, uh, sorry to interject. I just uh, was curious if you could provide us a little bit of background on what the situation was at the time in Peru that that made it such a hardship for the family, just for those of us who may not have the context mm-hmm. of the conflict. Yeah. Well, Peru is a very um, segregated country. It's a country with big colonial heritage, where people of European descent have exploited uh, native peoples. And and so while in other countries there were some revolutionary attempts, there were some in Peru too, but um, they were not successful. Uh, there were the 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 military uh, dictatorship that I grew up under, or the, kind of the first one, mm-hmm. was um, a so- socialist regime. With this is different from the other military dictatorships, like in the Southern Cone and, and Central America, that, that were right wing governments. So this was a socialist government, but that did not succeed in its reforms. So the, and then there was a, a right-wing 
military government who that displaced this other wow. military government. Mm -hmm. And and then there was um, a transition to democracy in 1980, but at that time, uh, this movement, uh, the Shining Path, had been growing, and um, it had a Maoist ideology, mm. and they refused the democratic process, basically, and um, had these theories that the only way to, to achieve change was through war. Uh -huh. And um, through, the, through an armed um, revolution. And, and so uh, they started um, sometimes killing authorities in the highlands, uh, burning down towns. Um, they started by burning down the where the where people dep deposit the votes for the first election that we had. Mm. And so, but the the response from the from the national forces was brutal. So, the the people who were supposed to so both these armed groups who claim to represent the people and the state who is supposed to defend the citizens, they both were killing indiscriminately. Wow. And the and and all this was happening more in the highlands, particularly in the area of Ayacucho. My whole family lived in, in Lima, the capital, in the coast. And so we didn't see any major the, the the presence of the violence was not as um as dangerous mm -hmm. until like 1992 when when more of these terrorist attacks started happening in the capital right but i grew up with uh blackouts um there were blackouts because there were bombs that will uh, bring down uh, mm. electricity tower, mm. curfew, and and also there was uh, an economic crisis. It was very very hard to imagine a a future there, and I I couldn't align myself with kind of the 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 people who were in the left, um, like you know I identified. As a as a leftist, mm -hmm. but but the democratic left didn't know how to position themselves regarding the shining path mm -hmm. because there were moments where people thought, well, maybe this is the legitimate revolution that, that we didn't know how to do, and people are doing it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you saw that these people were destroying uh, and killing people and and towns, right? Yeah, yeah. So so. It was all very overwhelming, and mm -hmm. I couldn't see myself really staying in the country. Um, I left. I thought it was going to be temporary, but I ended up just you know, in the United States. Right. So how old were you when you left? I was 20. I had just turned 26. I see. So it seems like there there was very little memory of 
Copa Peru without that kind of turmoil, like it was kind of baked into the consciousness of the entire nation, right? Whether you were in a, in an area that was privileged or maybe an area that was not receiving as much of that uh, that violence head on, but it, it was still part of everyone was part of the conflict. Yeah. Do you remember a time when that wasn't the case growing up? Um. Well, I think that that um, I was not aware, right? I was, I was, mm. I was very young. Um, I think I was three, maybe when the first um, when we had that first dictatorship. Wow! In, in my memory, but the country had already, you know, been <laughs> having these yeah. issues for, you know, for, for sure centuries Uh so yeah it it seems that that's something that like you were saying you were not able to really talk about maybe weren't ready emotionally for until later on in your career once you had been removed from it quite a bit right and in my fiction i still don't really write about that Mm. the I, i could only write about that from somebody who is watching this in the news like very removed yeah uh, yeah. There is a um, there is a movie um, uh, called uh, Trip to to Tombuktu mm-hmm. um, that is not. I think that there is another Tombuktu movie that that was that got an Oscar or something. It's not that one. It's a Peruvian film, mm. and I th- I think that is the closest that I seen to a person with similar experiences to mine trying to. To to show how it felt to be mostly protective and safe, but aware that you know people were being killed, mm. you know, yeah, kilometers yeah. where you were, and and how to so it's a, a a mix of kind of guilt and other feelings and right, and I think maybe that's why. In in my personal writing, I feel that I can only write about very personal experiences or mm-hmm. or images of things that that I witness myself, and not try to write about the conflict. I do have a, a an academic book that has to do with with that um, how to represent that memory and how there are attempts by uh, artivists who precisely trying to bridge the gap between what what victims and relatives of victims remember and how to convey that to uh, those uh, centers of the country who did not experience the conflict uh, mm-hmm. firsthand. So you feel that there is a, sort of a retelling of history happening uh, in the aftermath of these things in, in Peru, like there are some sections of the of the public that maybe perhaps don't agree on what the what actually happened yeah totally i think that that actually there are always we're always um telling versions of history right mm-hmm. and and so the um, there is the the big issue is how do we um try to 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 Use documentation and and try to assess what happened, and not simply accept um, the the 
the you know the official story right mm-hmm. yeah um, and the the in particular in peru is this this narrative that all oh, the the armed forces saved the country from terrorism oh right? wow yeah um, because they killed i don't i don't remember the 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 proportion now but they killed thousands and thousands of people oh my goodness oh i'm sorry continue no no no. go ahead i was just uh curious of what your thoughts are on the idea of art being that kind of gateway into the perspective of the of the other side Mm -hmm. do you feel like that's the kind of the kind of thing that you feel when you're writing like this is something that is important because it's passing on the truth in some way even if it's just my personal perspective of it how how do you align on that responsibility i think that i try to align my academic work with that uh and but my but not really my my fiction sometimes my poetry uh particularly i have a poem about about the the killing of young black men in the in the united states but but often my my stories and my poetry go in other directions and and actually uh, there's a um i feel that that there's a bit of escapism really in my stories and mm-hmm. that's that's the, the last story in the book is actually um i think it's called escapism and and it's just this brief story i think i can it's two lines i think is <laughs> is um um, are you here? And the response is, no, I'm there. Mm. And that's it, right? And I, I think that that uh, sums up a little bit of my feeling of being out of place and being uh, unable to really grasp with the, the pain of some experiences and just going into a bit of this fantasy world in which I write and I deal with the other things in in my academic writing. And and the other things that I'm writing right now, I think that go in, in another way. I, I've moved on um because of, of personal experiences to to try to um move on to the field of of the medical humanities uh and the health humanities. Um and so now my some of the things that I'm trying to do in my writing now is to explore how um, illness affects us socially and how from a humanistic perspective we need to to look for new ways of understanding uh, illness and health mm. so um, I I still uh, go back to to writing about the issues of of the war in Peru, um, but but I I'm also trying to incorporate more of these uh, ethical social responsibilities in other areas of my writing. But I think that while there are intersections in my fiction and my poetry, is is more of this other space where I can abandon rationality and purpose really and just write um in 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 other registers Mm. 
That's incredible because I wanted to ask you so much about this feeling that you may have experienced or whatever feelings you may have experienced being somebody from Peru coming to a new country and experiencing that sort of culture clash that happens here. The idea of community and how to handle a change that is drastic is that I know a lot of us have experienced something similar to that, but I'm curious because I know that perhaps uh, the kind of escapism that you're talking about that is presenting itself in your work is part of that sort of ailment for the displacement, right? Cultural displacement in a way. But I'm curious how you arrive at that and how you went about forming some idea of community or some idea of a new home once you Mm -hmm. move, because it's so such a huge part of the the reason that I want to write as well. And I just, I just think it's such a fascinating experience that you've had that um, I, I'm very curious about that. Yeah. So when I, when I arrived in New York, I was so supported really. Um, uh, a professor who had been my mentor in Peru um, was then a professor not in the institution where I was studying, but in a different one. But she um, allowed me to to stay with her until the the housing in in the graduate school was ready for me. Mm. Uh, I was supported by the institution, like not financially, mm-hmm. um, uh, through uh, teaching assistantship. So I had a place to live. Um, I was very poor. the 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 stipend uh, to live with was was very very tight. <laughs> Yeah. Um but but still I I had things were easy, kind of <laughs> relatively more, more easy than than working in Peru. I had a, a a library where I could uh if they didn't have it, I could request the book and they will bring it to me, right? <laughs> um, and and so I had this professor who introduced me to other Peruvian friends to other Latin American friends. Uh, people will give me uh, coats for the winter that they were not using anymore. <laughs> and uh, invite me for dinner and I could have, you know, wonderful Peruvian dinner. Mm. Um, and, you know, I only have money to have fried eggs and rice or, <laughs> or, or just you know, plain pasta or something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and my classmates, uh, came from from Spain and Chile and Argentina um, and Cuba and other places, and so we we formed a a community that was very very tight mm-hmm. and that really was kind of a, a foster family, right? Mm-hmm. I, there were things that I missed. My my nieces at that time were were babies, mm-hmm. so I. He's seen them grow up, um, yeah. but but I didn't feel as lonely as I would feel when I moved to to Chicago, and mm. my colleagues at the university were all kind of really busy in their careers. It's a very solitary. Uh, there's these are solitary endeavors where kind of everybody's working on their own research, like in the humanities. I think that in, in other areas, people have labs at least, and you have a <laughs> collective. Yeah. But in humanities, it's very isolating. Mm-hmm. 
So um, really, it 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 took me a while to to start making friends, and and um, the majority of my friends were were my own students. Mm-hmm. Felt more kind of open than my colleagues felt at the time, mm-hmm. um, and I was also closer in age to my students than than I was to my colleagues then. Mm-hmm. And then I met my husband and and also started making friends through the the parents of our children's friends. Oh, yeah. So little by little you 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 start creating new networks. Yeah. Um yeah. and so I I now feel at home in, in Chicago, but <laughs> but it, it takes a lot longer than it did in New York. Yeah. You kind of answered my next question because I was gonna ask you if uh, if it's gotten any easier, but I'm very interested to know if your life in academia has been, if you feel that your life in academia has been affected negatively or otherwise by where you come from. Um, I know that a lot of folks talk about some academic circles being fairly um, closed off to, to people of color, to people from other nations or places. And I'm curious if your experience has been a positive one altogether or if there have been moments that have tainted the way that you view academia? I think for me, it has been mostly positive, mm-hmm. but I know that it has not been the case for other people of color in my institution. My institution is a, a state institution, mm-hmm. um, and we are a Hispanic-serving institution, so that means that more than 30% of the student population is Latinx. Mm. Actually, I think we're close to 40% maybe. Oh, wow. And that is not reflected in the faculty, in the faculty right? Mm-hmm. But I think that, that still um, in the years that I've been here, I think that, that, that my research has been supported so my institution has a Latin American and and Latino studies program. I think that there are a lot of positive things. Mm. I do feel that there is a little bit of kind of intellectual prejudice, mm. uh, and there's a and there's a little bit of of I have mm-hmm. to say this kind of imperialistic attitude from English departments, right? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. so in in terms of literature. I think that English departments feel that they could teach anything and they could teach anything in translation. And they, I don't know if they, and and it's not the individuals in the English department. It's not my Mm -hmm. colleagues in the English department. I think of the, like institutionally. Yeah. And because I know that, you know, many of them, I had a minor in French or, or in Spanish or whatever, or they, and they know that, you know, French and Spanish and Italian and uh, and uh, Arabic and other departments do not just teach the language, but but there is a little bit of that, right? And yeah, um, yeah. And so I th- I think that some people in in the traditional programs of comparative literature, for example, felt that if they specialize in in Spanish, they were not taken as seriously as if they were specializing in another European mm-hmm. language. 
Right. So I'm curious during your many years learning about Latinx literature or, or the literature of Latin America and beyond, what are some through lines that you find in these places of, of the new world that have such a vast history, but there, um, I imagine there's common through lines in, in the work of, in that collective body of work, would you, wouldn't you say? Well, I think it's, it's very hard um, because you're always going to select a, a, a corpus. And when you do that, you are also excluding a lot of things. Mm. And so in, in any, any kind of, of generalization we do, we are only uh, looking at, and as, at a segment, right? Mm. Um, something that I'm happy to see in my own country is um, that there's, there are starting to to publish more um, literary works in native languages. Oh, that's great! Uh, that, yeah, that, that is amazing. But it's only starting, uh, and and just a little bit at a time, right? Mm-hmm. But so regarding the the other thing that you asked, but my, in my first book, I tried to, you know, present a, a, a thesis of something that I was seeing with uh, these novels, especially from the kind of 1960s to the end of the 20th century. So at that time, I felt that there were several writers, especially the, the very famous writers that constituted what was called the, the boom of Latin American literature, mm. like Garcia Marquez. Uh, Vargas Llosa, uh, Julio Cortázar, uh, Carlos Fuentes, etc., who had representations of families. And when they were telling these family stories, they were uh, presenting something about the what was happening with the concept of the nation. Mm-hmm. And so something that I that I saw was like, for example, in in Garcia Marquez, you would have this this multi-generational family, but kind of the whole existence of Macondo, mm-hmm. um, the place, this imaginary place where the novel happens and that many see as a representation of not just Colombia, but the whole of Latin America, mm. that it's all um, this family uh, with this patriarchal line that ends up um kind of self-destructing mm. right uh and also that it has this this stark division of gender roles right and uh, and how the the nation was really constructed through this patriarchal line so and what i felt is that the novels from this period were seeing the destruction of this which in the 19th century when the nations were starting to be constituted. Um, it was seen like you you were supposed to have this this um, romantic pairings of different uh, segments of society mm. to start building the nation. And what I found is like half a century later, this was already collapsing. Wow, there's so much to parse through there, and I I appreciate that because I had never considered that even in my years of reading some of these works, that that is a, an existing idea 
that might have found its home in various different countries or various different authors trying to formulate this this notion of the nation as a family. So it's uh, very, very incredible. And can we find this um, book that you wrote online? Yeah, okay. um, I, sadly, it's not, it's, it's not published electronically because it's... Oh, okay. Uh, and, and it might be hard to get except for, for from... Um, an academic library, like a sure, sure. But, but it's, it's called uh, Novelas Familiares. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, I could send you a, a link to it. And um, oh, please, yeah, that'd be great. And yeah. we'll, yeah, we'll make sure that we get the word out there because I that's just something that for me, um, being in a place like Wyoming that did not have that kind of, I guess, awareness about other. Other literature, world literature in particular, it feels like a, a lot of my life has been catch up, especially being so interested in in writing and literature and things like that. There's, I, I'm always a couple of years behind the curve on a lot of things, so that's always appreciated. It is academic book that that is available online. Mm-hmm. It's in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called uh, Despadre, and mm-hmm. and there I go, kind of a. A step farther, and this is that is all about Peruvian literature, but a lot of it mm. can be uh, applied to to Latin America, I believe. And I think in in that other book, what I try to show is how um, Latin American patriarchy um, reveals the faults of patriarchy itself, because mm. patriarchy is based on the man um, not being uh, being kind of whole and not vulnerable, uh, mm-hmm. there is an identification, and this comes from kind of psychoanalytic theories of uh, the man as uh, the one who has the the phallus, like for like he has uh, external genitals, mm. and therefore he seems that he has not been castrated. He is the powerful uh, and. Uh, he is the law, right? Right. Uh, but in colonial situations, even the powerful men in those countries are never the law because the law is in the center of the empire, right? Mm. So they're always aware of that fault, of that vulnerability. But sometimes that vulnerability can lead to cynicism, to pretend that they respect the the law but actually breaking it all the time mm. or to um this display of violence to assert that actually they are not vulnerable and they do have the power right, right? and it's it's so powerful because you're almost touching on something that is nowhere near gone i mean this is mm. this is something that is still haunting current governments and current leadership uh mm. and it's interesting to think that something so pervasive that has been going on forever and there's very little that is happening to change the way that we view leadership and government and anything other than the the patriarchal system that we that we have all over the world in particular latin american countries it's very pervasive i imagine but i got a couple more questions to be mindful of your time i'm so excited to have gotten to talk to you today because i'm learning so much yeah, and this is this has been such a a pleasure. Regarding the Ghost of You, which is the collection that's coming out here at the beginning of twenty twenty three, 
Can you elaborate just a little bit on what that process was like from when you began to when you knew that it was completed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this collection actually uh, brings together two previous collections. It's a translation of a uh, uh, Spanish collection of, of short stories in Spanish. Uh, it was, it's called uh, La Ciudad en que no estás. Mm. Which is a great title, city. by the way. I, I love that title so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we felt, um, the editor, Luciana Rega and I, that it was a little bit, it felt a little bit clumsy in English, that, mm. that calling mm. it the city where you are not, um, <laughs> yeah. didn't, yeah. didn't quite sound the same. So uh, we picked another line of, of uh, one of the stories that we feel represents um, that, that spirit of absence. Because in, in La Ciudad en que no estás, um, uh, the city where you are not, this, you can be the, the other person, the person that is missed, uh-huh. but it also could be the, the city where I am not. Right. Yeah. Uh, the cities that are represented, for example, uh, you know, I'm in Chicago and I'm not in New York and I'm not in Lima and I'm not in Barcelona. I'm not in El Defe. Right. So I could be um, writing imaginary stories about those, those cities uh, that I cannot experience in, in the present. Right. Mm hmm. Uh, at the same time, I could be writing about Chicago and all the people that I wish were here with me who are not here. Mm-hmm. And so there's this ghostly, uh, spectral aspect to many of the stories. That's just so powerful. And I, I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to ask you about translation earlier because that's just a, an entire beast of an episode in and of itself. But yeah. maybe <laughs> next episode or next time we get to chat, I, it would be a pleasure to kind of dig deeper into that. But what was the relation like with your editor in working on that translation process? If you could give me just a quick uh, <laughs> cliff's notes yeah. on what that no, process was like. It's been awesome. And I really recommend uh, Luciana and, and Laberinto Press uh, to any, any author. They, they specialize in, in world literatures uh, that, and to make them accessible to English speakers, uh, English readers, right? Mm-hmm. So, so her main thing is translation. Mm-hmm. Um, she found my my collection, um, La Ciudad en que no estás, uh, in, in part because it had a, a blurb in the back of a, an author that we both uh, admire and love, Ana Maria Shua, mm-hmm. an Argentinian writer who, who writes a lot of um, micro stories so uh i i learned a lot from reading her and it was an honor that she wrote that blurb Mm. so that's how how luciana found my stories (laughs) and and she wrote me a very formal email uh, introducing herself and asking me if i was interested in in publishing with her and then we had a meeting and we totally hit it off i think that i just saw Luciana's latest Instagram post about how people tell her that she's supposed to have a, a professional uh, page and a personal page, but she cannot really separate them. And I'm kind of the same way. <laughs> so, so we totally hit it off. And uh, initially we tried 
um, a professional translator. And we didn't uh, like the sample that, that this person sent us mm. and decided to just work together in the translation. And it was a lot of work, um, but I think that we ended up uh, very happy with with kind of trying to to find the 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 la, la palabra precisa, you know, right? Yeah, like the precise yeah. word, the precise <laughs> turn of phrase. So I my 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 creative literature, um, my short. A lot of people tell me that they are not really short stories. There's there's not much of a plot. <laughs> You're <laughs> in the plot, not that. Um, but it's more like so they tend to be a bit poetic, a little kind of they play with language. So the translation had to reflect that. Yeah. And and I think that that Luciana and I. Um, collaborating in in a great way to to reproduce that. Oh, that's beautiful and, and wonderful to hear because it is it has to be a very intimate, very understanding relationship uh, where you're you're willing to give and take a little bit, and there has to be a balance struck. But yeah. lastly, uh, because I want to make sure that we can pass some knowledge on to younger folks who are starting their creative journey as a, as an artist, not not because they want to publish or make it big or anything like that, but because they need to do this, because they don't have a choice in the matter, mm -hmm. what are some things that have worked for you over the years in maintaining your output mm -hmm. um, that might serve other people? Yeah, um, as I said, you know, I, I did not devote. There are other people from my generation who made it as as novelists, uh, as as that being their first identity, that as mm -hmm. a, a writer, right? I. I I feel that I'm lots of things, but perhaps most of all a reader and a teacher. Um, and um, but I, for me, for my own experiences, just write. Just try to give yourself a few minutes a day or a few minutes a week to write. And if you're like me, I, I I'm sad to say that I don't think that you need to rely on the muses but a little bit I, I i do i do i do write out of inspiration something that kind of grasps my attention and and sticks with me as an image as a sentence and that just sticks with me and it's on my mind until i need to just put it down in words so for me kind of respecting that voice and being open to that to that kind of frequency of signals that the world gives you and tells you, okay, this has touched you, so grasp it. Mm -hmm. Try to pay attention to it and record it. Wonderful, wonderful. Margarita, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Congratulations on this wonderful collection that I can't wait to read, and I hope everyone gets a chance to read it as well. From Laberinto Press, it is The Ghosts of You. And thank you for being awesome, for sharing so many insights with, with me and the listener. It's been a lot of fun, and I know we just scratched the surface, but I hope yeah. we get to talk down the road a little bit more. <laughs> I love this conversation, Jaime. It was a, a total pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you, and I will talk to you real soon on the internet, okay? Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.